Person Unknown by Michael Pankavich. Steve Harrison, 35 years old, handsome, has the world in his hands. He is admired by his co-workers, his friends, his wife, and his mistress. And then he gets a call. Bill informs him that his wife has been kidnapped, and if Steve wants her back alive, he has to do exactly what he's told. If Steve deviates from Bill's plan, tries going to the police, or tries to involve others, his wife won't be breathing when he brings her home. Buy, download, and read Person Unknown by Michael Pankavich. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. You may think you're in a church, but you're here with me, T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player, producer, and the guy who likes to play with the different songs on his keyboard. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be original stories. Others will be the classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no fakes, no breaks, no retakes. This is season four, A Word Before Dying. This season contains original stories written just for you and built around that classic mystery theme of A Word Before Dying. Episode 8 is about separating reality from imagination. This is The Ghost of the Paul Henry by Michael Pencavage. Spring, 1889, Chapter 1. How are the sails faring for the month, Linus? asked Edmund as he walked over to an open window to light his cigarette mindful of his partner's intolerance for the fumes. About to settle down for his afternoon tea, Linus reluctantly placed the cup back onto the saucer and opened the ledger book. Slightly over last month, Linus replied, the gentleman from Bangladesh who needed passage of his tigers back to India put us over the top. Edmund exhaled the plume of smoke. Excellent. If we keep up at this rate, we most certainly will be able to close up shop during July. He looked around the room with disdain. New York is absolutely unbearable during the summer. Linus closed the ledger and placed it on the shelf behind his desk. And where do you plan on traveling? Canada. Montreal, to be specific, Edmund said. The cooler climate will keep my nerves in check. Knuckles rapped against the office door. Before they could respond, a barrel-chested man came hurrying in, wide-eyed and pale-faced. He removed his his cap and clutched it in his hands. Mr. Edmund Jessup? Mr. Linus Gordon? He asked, looking at them expectantly. Edmund nodded. We are they, he said, looking over the man. Which vessel did you sail in from, Captain? The man looked at Edmund, bewildered as he ran his hand through his thick salt-and-pepper hair. How did you know that, sir? Callous, cracked hands such as yours do not come from working indoors, he gestured to an empty chair. Please, have a seat. Their guest was visibly distressed as he continued to mash his hat in his hands. My name is Frank Saverfeld, captain of the Paul Henry. Would you care for a cup of tea, captain? asked Linus. No, thank you. I'm fine, said the captain. 
Edmund sat down next to the man. You seem agitated, sir. Has availability opened up on your vessel that you need assistance in finding another client? No, on the contrary. The captain paused for a moment as he looked at the two men. Is it true that both of you served in the British Merchant Navy? Linus nodded. Yes, I was a steward above the sea mist while Edmund served as boatswain. Captain Saverfeld nodded. Good. I'm glad I was not misinformed. I've heard of how you solved the Bonnington mystery aboard the sea mist while you served under it. Edmund cordially smiled. That was a long time ago, Captain, and I'm afraid that the story has been somewhat warped over the years. I'm certain the truth is not nearly as sensational as the version you most likely heard. The captain shook his head. That may be so, but let me ask, if not for your intellects, would more lives have been lost on the ship? Linus waved it away dismissingly. We merely added the facts, my good man. Nothing more. Saverfeld practically bounced off of his seat with excitement, and that is precisely why I need your help. I'm at my wit's end, gentlemen. My wit's end. Have you contacted the police? asked Linus. I've spoken to the authorities, but... The captain didn't finish the thought. Why don't you share with us the details of your story, Captain Saverfeld, said Edmund. It was during my last voyage, the captain began. I had a hull brimming with sugar cane bound from South America. About three days into the journey, one of my men, Rogers, a boatswain, was found dead in the galley. What time of day was he found, asked Edmund. Dawn, our steward found him when he arrived to prepare the morning chow. He found Rogers slumped over a table. Any evidence as to how he was killed, inquired Linus. None whatsoever, the captain said. No knife wounds or bludgeoning could be located on his body. But what troubled me most was his death mask. Please explain, said Edmund. It was his eyes, Mr. Jessup, wide and white as I ever did see a pair. And his mouth was open and contorted as if he had experienced such agony I cannot even fathom. Sounds like a heart seizure, said Linus. Saverfeld shook his head. The man was in good shape, strong like an ox, good with his fists. Once we had an unruly sailor on our hands midway through a voyage, it looked like we were going to have to lock the bloke up for the remainder of the trip. But all it took was two blows from Roger's fist, and the man became as quiet as a church mouse until we made landfall. Perhaps he had too much to drink. All it takes is one awkward swell to lose your footing, remarked Linus. Impossible, said the captain. I keep the grog under lock and key. While we were underway, it was strictly rationed out based on how well the mates keep the ship maintained. Hmm. Did this man Rogers have any enemies on board? asked Dunman. Saverfeld shook his head. Not at all. He treated the other men in the ship with respect. It was a sad day indeed when he, we slid his body off to Davy Jones. Linus crossed his legs. Don't take this the wrong way, Captain, but I failed to see what help we can bring you with this. It sounds rather routine, although a horribly unfortunate event. We're sailors, not inspectors. Absolutely, sir. Saverfeld wretched his hat again. But there's more to the tale. Chapter 2 Four nights later, a scream bellowed near the bow, the captain said. 
my second mate, who was near the stern, keeping an eye on matters, raced towards the nose, fearful that one of the men had taken a spill overboard. What did he find, asked Linus. Simon Bettany, one of the hands, was lying on his side, stiff as a board. My second instructed one of the sailors to go and fetch me while he kept watch over the body. I arrived minutes later from my cabin and had the entire area lanterned up so we could properly examine the body. Bethany was in the same condition as Rogers. No visible signs of injury, replied the captain, but the look on his face, he paused for a moment as if ashamed to continue. And that singular word that the second heard from the victim right after the scream, ghost. Edmund and Linus said nothing as they listened intently. We were still some distance away from port. The day after Bentony died and a slack wind fell upon the ship just as we entered the southern tropics, it was then that things went from bad to worse. What do you mean, asked Linus. A rumor broke amongst the crew that Bentony and Rogers had befallen, been befallen by a ghost. Linus placed his teacup down. A ghost? The captain shook his head. I don't know how it started, but between the queer way in which they died, as well as the idle time the crew found themselves with due to the slack wind, the rumor fested. With each passing night, the hands began to share stories about seeing shadows in the darkened corners and hearing noises that they were certain weren't from the creaking boat timbers. I tried my best to keep the hands busy with cleaning and scrubbing. I even reduced the grog to one cup per day. But the heat and the poor winds began to win over the crew's nerves. Each evening brought more stories and more tension, so much so that I feared there might be a mutiny on my hands. Fortunately, we passed out of the doldrums. An ease passed over the crew, and, and I thought we were through the worst of it. But another murder occurred, continued Edmund. Yes, the captain said regretfully. The night after we came out of the doldrums, Peter Mulberry, one of the deckhands, was found dead in his bunk. The same causes, inquired Edmund. Saverfeld nodded. The cabins were scorching, so only a few hands ventured down below to sleep. Mulberry was alone in his cabin when he died, but there was one disturbing difference about his death. The door was closed and bolted from the inside. It seems odd that we would, he would have locked the door, commented Linus, considering that he shared the room with the other sailors. The captain shrugged. Nerves were still on edge. There were those who believed a killer was on board. Mulberry likely locked the door as a precaution to make sure he wasn't snuck up on while he napped. Edmund shook his head. A testament to your leadership, Captain, that you were able to keep the crew together for the remainder of the voyage. It wasn't easy, Mr. Jessup, Saverfeld said. After Mulberry died, I had to keep a good amount of the crew under lock and key. It was only due to a few hands who had maintained a clear head and the fortunate weather that I was able to sail the Paul Henry safely into port. Edmund put out a cigarette. A most unsettling story. You mentioned after you docked that you had gone to the authorities to discuss the matter? The captain shook his cap in frustration. Yes, I spoke to the captain of the local police force. After much persuasion on my part, he took a couple of his men and did a cursory review of my ship and deemed nothing was wrong. Nothing wrong, echoed Linus, Linus incredulously. All of the bodies had been delivered to the ocean, Saverfeld explained, and the scenes of the deaths, with the exception of Mulberry's, had been wiped clean by the wind and the sea. 
and even though I allowed no entry to Mulberry's room, the police were able to find nothing out of the ordinary. Not even the slightest clue, asked Linus. Cyberfeld shook his head. Edmund rubbed his chin thoughtfully. A set of most peculiar events, Captain. I'm sorry the police did not get you the satisfaction you sought. I feel part of the reason that the deaths did not occur on their soil, the captain said. They aren't like us, gentlemen. They're land lovers. I'm afraid that they have overlooked something important, and that's why I came to seek your help. You wish us to visit the Paul Henry and look around firsthand? asked Linus. Saverfeld cleared his throat, <clears throat> in, a, in a manner of speaking. You wish us to voyage with you, corrected Edmund. Why, uh, yes, stammered Saverfeld. In one week's time, the Paul Henry is scheduled to take a shipment of tea to London en route from the Orient. Quite a pricey payload, remarked Edmund. A shipload of tea and a jittery crew make for a volatile combination. Exactly. And that is what has me so worried. Saverfeld wiped his brow. I am prepared to be quite generous in my offer of convincing you to join me on the journey. A trip to London is quite an undertaking, Captain, said Linus. Yes, but something nefarious is inspiring panic on my ship, gentlemen, Saverfeld said with conviction. Something evil and something I can't explain. I'd been on the sea all my life and seen all matters of dastardly business, but nothing I have experienced has equaled the horror and dread that I felt during this past voyage. All I am certain of is that I need someone with your skills to help me deal with it if it happens again. When do you repart? asked Edmund. This Sunday morning, he said, at dawn. If you would please let my partner and I discuss your proposal, we'll send a letter regarding our decision by midweek, said Edmund. But you haven't heard my offer, Saverfeld said. And a most generous one it will certainly be, said Edmund. One last question, Captain. Does anyone know of your trip to see us? No one, sir. Very good. I would appreciate it if you kept it that way. Captain Saverfell nodded as he rose from his chair. I will leave you then to your deliberations. With that, the burly man put his wrinkled cap back on, shook hands with Edmund and Linus, and bid them good day. Chapter 3 The wooden planks protested loudly as Edmund and Linus walked out onto the pier. The smells were heavy there salt and brine mostly, but other scents, such as flats of salted meat and barrels of apple, filled the air as they were loaded onto the Paul Henry. Edmund approached a man at the base of the gangplank. He was short and stocky, with a balding head and a reddish nose, the first mate. He glanced up at Edmund and Linus before burying his face back in his clipboard. Name, he grumbled. Edmund scratched his newly grown stubble of a beard. Edmund Sullivan, he answered choosing to go with his mother's maiden name. The first looked at Linus with the same scowl. Linus Grovesteed. Steward and deckhand is what I've got you both down for. I'm Keller. You two are aware of the problems this boat has had on his trip into port? I've heard some rumors, replied Linus. That sort of thing gonna bother you? asked the mate. They're saying this boat, boat is haunted. The only thing gonna bother us is not getting paid, said Linus. The mate was not impressed. 
Be warned that aboard the Paul Henry, any bad behavior by the crew is rewarded by 15 lashes and a trip to the brig. If I didn't know any better, said Edmund, I would think you didn't want us to come aboard. Keller thumbed over his shoulder. Your bunks are down below. The second mate, Henry Tillery, was in complete contrast to Keller. The man practically walked with a spring in his step as he briefly toured them through the ship's quarters. Happy to be back on the water? asked Edmund. I've never been much of a land lover, replied Tillery. Stable ground is only meant for people to be buried in. And for me, not even that, he sighed. Been on the sea my entire life. More than just the trade routes, inquired Edmund. He nodded, assisted in some exploring jaunts with a few fortune seekers, answered the second, traveled all over like Sinbad traveling the seven seas. Linus noticed the sparsity of the crew's quarters. Got a skeleton crew for this trip? That'd be putting it mildly, Tillery said, the bare minimum. Any of the hands get injured during this trip and we might be in a pickle. I heard about the troubles with the last voyage, said Edmund. Tillery paused, looking between the pair. Either of you blokes superstitious? Neither answered. That's good, commented Tillery. Lots of jittery mates on board. The last thing the captain needs is two more. A lot of the crew fled once you made port? A good number, he said, except for a few hardy souls and a few like yourselves who don't seem to mind the notion of a ship being haunted, at least for now. Tillery stopped at one of the cabins. It was a tight affair with rooms for four bunks and eight men. Here you all are all to yourself. I suppose this is one good thing of traveling with the light crew. He turned to Edmund. Stow your belongings and report to the galley. And then to Linus, he said, report to the deck in five minutes. He left. They began settling in. Just like old times, eh? Commented Linus as he took a deep breath in lost in thought for a moment. Did you brush up on your culinary talents and review your cookbooks? Somewhat, Edmund said, though as we both know, I won't be preparing quite the same cuisine as they served on the sea mist. They shared a chuckle before he added, but remember to be alert, my friend. Something is terribly amiss on this ship, and we best be careful not to let it get to us before we uncover it. Chapter 4 No sooner had Linus left than a boy appeared in the doorway. He had sandy blonde hair and a face full of sun freckles. You the new steward? He asked with a pronunciation that made Edmund cringe. I'm Yancey, assistant steward. Captain asked me to come and show you the galley and where we store the goods. Very well, answered Emmon. You've been serving under Captain Saverfield for a long time. Almost two years, Yancey said. Catton treats me and the other mates well, so I've decided to hang around for a bit more. And this business that's been going around hasn't made you reconsider? The boy crossed his arms defiantly. It'll take more than a few spooks to scare me off, unlike the previous steward who went running for the hills as soon as we docked. The boy reminded him of himself at that age. What do you think the crew would like to eat on their first night out? Yancey stared at him, thrown off by the question. If Edmund was going to acquire some allies on the ship, who better to start with than someone who could go anywhere on the boat without drawing attention? I think the hands would enjoy some salted pork, Yancey offered thoughtfully, to help calm them nerves about them spooks. 
they began to walk toward the galley. I almost forgot, said Yancey, as he dug into his pocket and removed an envelope. Captain told me to give this to you. Didn't tell me what it was for. There was a slight weight to the envelope. Thank you, Yancey. I'll meet you in the galley in a short time. The boy went off and Edmund unsealed the envelope. Inside was a brass key and a slip of paper with the room number scribbled on it. Mulberry's room. Now the hand's room was identical to his own. Mulberry's bunk still had his possessions tucked away in it. Edmund sifted through the man's belongings but found little of interest, remembering if there had been something deemed important, or more specifically valuable, the police would have taken it. There was a single open porthole in the room, which was allowing for a fair amount of daylight to filter in. Mulberry's bunk was closest to it, which meant that even in this meager little room, Mulberry had seniority. Edmund walked over to the portal, which was six inches across, and looked out. The hands were just about to cast off. Edmund swung the porthole latch closed, but it didn't stay shut. The clasp, which kept it shut, was broken. A slight tug on the latch made the porthole reopen. The bunk was hard and uncomfortable. He looked up at the window. Edmund listened as the waves lapped against the hull. They sounded different than just a moment ago, and Edmund knew that only meant one thing. They were underway. Later that evening, Linus found Edmund near the bow of the ship, smoking. Dinner was impeccable, Linus said, grinning. Edmund shook his head. You're a poor liar, my friend. But there is only so much you can do with the meal where the main ingredient is salt. Linus began to chuckle. Ah, the old days. Makes you wish for them again. I miss them as much as I do scurvy. When we left the sea mist, I swore I would never let the food on these boot boats touch my lips. Edmund sighed as he looked over the calm waters. A favorable starboard wind had been with them since they had left port, and already New York had disappeared over the horizon. How are the hands faring? Not bad, Linus said, but there is an underlying uneasiness. Edmund nodded. Any rumors spread? Any of the crew imagining seeing things? Linus chuckled. Always the cynic, eh, Edmund? Pragmatist, my friend. Simply a pragmatist. Show me a man who can spin these tales without a belly full of grog, and that man will command my utmost attention. Good evening, gentlemen, boomed a familiar voice. Captain Saverfeld appeared from the starboard, his massive frame filling up the staircase as he descended down the stairs to the bow deck. Excellent meal, he commended, lighting up his pipe. At the very least, money well spent there. Edmund tipped his hat. Thank you, Captain. Saverfeld looked out over the water. Favorable conditions tonight. Excellent way to begin our voyage. He exhaled a plume of smoke. I realize we are just underway, but do you have any thoughts as to what might be going on? Edmund puffed on his cigarette. Still too early to share anything firm. However, I would suggest you take every precaution necessary to ensure your safety. Supernatural or not, there is a threat aboard the ship. Saverfeld was taken back, but the only people left on the Paul Henry are my most trusted hands. A bell began to ring from the stern of the ship. Oh no, this cannot be. Captain, what's wrong? asked Linus. That bell. The crew has instructions to ring it when there had been a sighting. Come with me. 
the men sprinted to the rear of the vessel until they came across a small group of hands. Stand aside, lads, stand aside, barked Saverfeld as he plowed through the sailors. The men all sported a worried expression. One of them, Stevenson, spoke up. I saw it, Captain. Saw what, man? Saverfeld demanded. Stevenson stood under his captain's glower. I was coming around the port side when I saw this large shadow scurrying across right in front of me. I tried chasing it, but it disappeared around the square rig and then vanished from sight. Saverfeld stepped in, crowding the man. You sure your eyes aren't playing tricks on you, Stevenson? Moon's particularly full tonight. Could have been the topsail casting shadows over the deck. No, Captain, Stevenson said quickly. I know when I'm seeing shadows and when I... Saverfeld had heard enough. And when you haven't seen anything at all, which is what happened here, he glared at the rest of the hands. Now, either all of you get down below and get some shut-eye, or we can start at early day and start scrubbing the decks. Edmund and Linus walked over to where Stevenson had seen the shadow. It was the port side. Beneath a few open portholes, there were no places for someone to hide. Keller walked up to them. You two gone deaf? Back below. Edmund turned to the first. Where do those portals lead to? Eller seemed shocked and has been spoken back to. Why do you want to know? If you would just humor me, Mr. Keller, Edmund said. Officer's quarter, such as my own, Keller snapped, if you're so interested. Edmund smiled and then began walking toward the crew's entrance. Sullivan, barked Keller. All of these questions, he pointed a fat figure at Edmund. I'll be watching you. Chapter 5 Three days passed without incident. It was evening and Edmund was cleaning up around his small kitchen when he heard a gasp quickly fouled, followed by a shriek come from the galley. Edmund grabbed a cast iron pot that he'd been cleaning and came rushing into the room. Yancey was lying on the floor. His eyes were wide open and he was gasping for breath as if he'd seen an unseen presence. Edmund rushed over and knelt down next to him. Yancey looked at him, grasping his shirt, trying to speak what was wrong, but no words came out. He opened the boy's mouth, trying to see if he was choking, when he noticed the color of his tongue. It was black as night. Yancey gasped again, shuddered a few times, and then fell limp in Edmund's arms. With Yancey's death, the crew was quickly worked up into a nervous fervor. At first light, Saverfeld gathered all hands on deck for a talking to. He placed his hands behind his back and paused for a moment before speaking. I realize the death of our young steward has caught everyone by surprise. Let me assure you that his death will be fully investigated. You gonna try and arrest the devil, Captain? yelled one of the hands from the crowd. There'll be no talking back to the captain, shouted Keller. Not until anyone feels like spending a few days in the brig. This settled the mates down somewhat, except for one who shouted, Investigated by who? We won't be reaching port for some time, captain. This time things are different, lad. He turned, he turned to his crew. This time I've got an investigator on board. Saverfeld turned to Edmund. 
Linus, meanwhile, had moved to the rear of the crowd, away from his partner. Captain gone mad, someone yelled, That's the cook! Saverfeld shook his head. I've hired Edmund Jessup back in New York to help me figure out what is going on aboard our ship. The only thing going on, Captain, is that the whole bloody vessel is haunted. The hand was cut off by Tillery, who spotted the instigator and clubbed the man from behind, sending him to the ground. Saverfeld continued. Mr. Jessup believes he has almost solved what has been transpiring aboard our ship. He told me he just needs a little more time, at which point he will inform me of his learnings. Edmund took a step closer to the captain and spoke. I realize all of you are uneasy at this present time. Let me assure you that the truth behind these murders will be brought to light in short order. Gonna put the ghosty in shackles, are you? joked one of the hands, which started a short burst of laughter from the crowd. Edmund nodded. All in good time, my man. All in good time. Saying that, the first stepped up next to Edmund and began barking orders. At once, the crowd dispersed. Later that night, Edmund, Linus, and Saverfeld were in the captain's quarters, sitting around the chart table. Maps, compasses, sextants, and other nautical apparatus covered the surfaces, as well as three glasses of brandy. Concern blanketed Saverfeld's face. I don't like this, Mr. Jessup. I don't like it one bit. Not to worry, Captain, Edmund said confidently. You played your part masterfully. Saverfeld gripped his drink and swallowed what remained in the glass. The only thing I did was shine a light on you, sir. Now, every move you make will be watched. I certainly hope so, Captain. It would have been most unfortunate if you had given your speech and our ghost was not in attendance. Edmund noticed Saverfeld's pistol holstered to his belt. Continue to have your weapon nearby, Captain. Oiled and loaded, please. With any luck, we will have an end to the sordid business before the sun rises. Linus and Edmund sat in opposite bunks. The porthole was open and a slight breeze trickled into the room. Linus wiped his brow. The one thing I definitely do not miss, Edmund, is the stifling heat of these ships. Agreed, Edmund said. Perhaps tomorrow we'll be able to sleep beneath the stars. Linus opened his shirt to cool himself. Had you told me a month ago that we would be setting sail for London in an attempt to solve murders, I would have thought you a bit daft. As would I, replied Edmund, as he listened to the sounds outside. Water sloshed against the hall. We're making good time. Voices from some of the hands on deck could be heard as well. Saverfeld had placed additional men on guard. Edmund glanced at his pocket watch. It's late. I don't think I'll be sleeping for a while if you want to rest, Linus. Linus gestured to the cabin door that had a wooden barrel in front of it. No need to be concerned for our safety. If anyone is going to gain entry, it's going to only be with a battering ram. Ghosts don't need to worry about such trivial, trivial obstacles, Edmund said coyly. Linus eyed his friend for a moment. You figured it all out, haven't you? Well, spill it, my man. Spill it. No need to put the cart in front of the horse, Edmund said. Not when I have a few questions that I still can't place. Perhaps if our customer, if our ghost comes to visit, they will provide some answers. Linus placed his pistol beside him. You best ask your questions quickly. Hot lead is going to be my answer if anyone tries to break in. Edmund removed a stiletto from its sheath and didn't reply. 
Linus dimmed the lantern so it emitted only the faintest of flickers. Outside, the crashing of the waves continued to be heard until it lulled him off to sleep. All right, Jack, here's our pause for you to catch our killer. You're going to need to help Mr. Edmund Jessup and Mr. Linus Gordon solve this dastardly ghostly murder. Uh, there's no suspects. <laughs> there is... They killed most of them. So there's the happy-go-lucky handyman. And second mate, Henry there's, Tillery. There's the first mate, other guy named Henry. Uh, his name is Mr. Keller. He's the mean yelly one. And the captain. The only other person we've met by name is the guy who rang the bell, Stevenson. Stevenson? Yeah, all the other, you're right, all the other hands we don't have a name for. We met Yancey, but he was victim number four. Well, you see, I had a, I was like, oh, it could be Yancey, because if their tongues are black, maybe it's poison. But Yancey's dead. And I was like, he's the only guy who could put the stuff in the food. Unless he poisoned himself or something like that. I'll bet you it actually is a ghost. You think it really is a ghost? Yep. I don't, because there's no motivation. There's no nothing. I'll bet you it's a ghost. Not to mention, it's weird that he seems very close to the killer because he has not, like, informed the reader anything. Mm. We know very little of whatever he knows. Or if we do know what he knows, and I don't know what he's thinking. You know? I know. What That doesn't actually, that sentence didn't make sense. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> That's not the point. I understood what you said, even if you didn't. <laughs> All right. Chapter six. Linus awoke to Edmund's cry of alarm. Aha! Back, swine! Back! Linus grabbed his revolver and bolted up from the cot. By the time he managed to collect his bearings and turn up the lantern, Edmund was standing by the porthole, breathing hard, a dagger in his hand. Blood dripped from the blade. The door, Linus! There's not a moment to lose! Our ghost bleeds? cried Linus as he slid the barrel away. Edmund flung the door open to reveal a small stampede of men, Saverfeld included, rushing toward their room. Mr. Jessup, cried Saverfeld, as his eyes fell upon the bloody dagger. Are you all right? Are you injured? Edmund shook him off. Captain, had you your weapon? Saverfeld raised a pistol. Excellent. Follow me. To the deck. Edmund went past, but the captain's arm stayed him. What is wrong? Saverfeld asked. No time to explain, Captain, Edmund yelled, rushing off. Time is of the essence. The score of men quickly rushed outside until they reached the side of the ship that had the porthole that led to Edmund's room. A lantern, he demanded. One of the hands passed it to him. He crouched down at the surrounding deck face to the floor until he cried out, Spots, he said pointing. Our ghost's bloody trail. Follow it and we find our culprit. This led to gasps from several of the men. Saverfeld held up his pistol. Weapons ready, men. This seemed to force a backbone into the crew as Edmund, lantern in hand, began to follow the trail of blood like a hound in pursuit of a fox. They raced across the ship until the blood led then back below deck. One of the hands gasped. We're heading straight into the officer's quarters. Through a corridor, they raced until they came to a small pool of blood collected in front of one of the rooms. This can't be, gasped Saverfeld. This is my second's room. Mr. Tillery, barked Edmund, the ruse is over. I advise you to come out now if you want your captain to show mercy. 
There was no response from inside the cabin. Saverfell nodded, and the burliest in the crew took it down. The mate shouldered up and brought the door down with two hard strikes. No sooner had he breached the room than he was met with a muzzle flash, sending the mate to his knees as he clutched his shoulder. Tillery's shot was met quickly by Saverfeld's gun. As the smoke cleared, Tillery was lying face down on the floor. Edmund walked into the room, dagger drawn. Saverfeld charged into the room but was held back by Edmund. Careful, Captain. The blood trail was not left by Mr. Tillery. His gun spent, Saverfeld unsheathed his cutlass. There, in the corner, exclaimed Linus, pointing. Someone shine a lantern. One of the crew did so, and the shadowed figure became illuminated. It's, it's some sort of monkey, commented one of the men. A group of cautiously, the group cautiously approached. The animal was no larger than a foot in size. It was huddled in the corner, just like Tillery, unmoving. The creature returned back to its master, where it finally succumbed to its wound and been said. Saverfeld sheathed his sword. Now hold on a minute, Mr. Jessup. Are you telling me this little bugger is responsible for murdering my crew? Edmund glanced to the men around him. Captain, I, I would suggest we have the rest of this conversation in private. The boatswain cleared out of the room. No one within 30 feet of this door, instructed Saverfeld. The motive was clear, began Edmund, to obtain your cargo and resell it to the highest bidder. Saverfell ran a hand down his face. How long did you know it was Tillery? Actually, I didn't, Edmund said. At first I thought it was your first mate, Mr. Keller. I thought he might have been behind the plot. The captain looked down at the guilty man. And you never thought it was some ghost? Edmund shook his head. I believe that someone was trying their best to make it seem like a ghost. The one piece of the puzzle that was baffling me was Mulberry's death and how it had been accomplished. That led me to reason that there was something more nefarious going on than I originally suspected. How were they killed? asked the captain. The bodies were thoroughly examined and no wounds were found. Edmund spoke up again. That was solved when the boy, Yancey, was killed. For the first time I was able to examine his body and noticed the strange color of his tongue. It meant only one thing. He was poisoned. Poisoned, Saverfell echoed? How? During the conversation, Edmund had been slowly walking around the room, searching. By poison dart, he picked up a small bamboo pipe, no larger than a flute, dispensed by this. Tillery would have had access to all the weapons as well as poison during his travels to Central Africa. I'm sure if we do a thorough search of the room, we'll come across the poison. The captain considered this. What you say makes sense, but again I ask, how did poor Mulberry die? Tillery did not have entry to his room. This is the part I struggle with the most. The most insidious act of the crime are always the most difficult to comprehend. Edmund gestured over to the primate, and this is where the poor creature in the corner comes into play. He walked over to the monkey and carefully turned it over using the flat edge of his dagger. There, still clutched in his hand, was a small spike. This is how Mulberry died. Tillery had trained the animal to sneak into the man's room through the portal and gave him a poke with the poison spike. Death was quick, but not painless. 
Linus and I would have suffered the same fate had we not been able to fend off the creature before it attacked. But what about the sightings that took place on the ship? The captain asked. Were they simply from this monkey running amok? Yes, Edmund said. Sometimes even the smallest creatures can seem like the largest monsters when the mind starts playing tricks on you. If there is something else to consider, I find it hard to believe that none of the other crew knew of the monkey's existence. Saverfeld's face turned red. Mr. Jessup, are you suggesting? I am simply stating, Edmund said, that if Tillery had planned to commit mutiny, there would have been no way he would have been able to go about it alone. A mutiny on my ship, and I have no idea who these men might be. The captain clasped his hands together. But you can explain to the why, sir. Why go through all of this dastardly business? Edmund nodded. What better motive than profit, Captain? How long did you think you would be able to continue to command a vessel with the skeleton crew? How much longer until financial turmoil was to set in? The captain dwelled on that for a moment. Tillery did approach me recently, wanting to know if I would be willing to sell. Another death, Captain? And I have a feeling you would have practically given the vessel away. Veins began to form on his brow as anger flashed in the captain's eyes. That scoundrel, he said. That absolute scoundrel. Linus walked up to him. Do you care for some advice, Captain? Tell away, sir. Well, it is true you do not know who precisely these men are, Linus said. There is no reason to let the crew know this fact. Saverfell frowned. What do you mean? Edmund spoke up then. What my partner is proposing is a bluff. You found a list in Tillery's cabin listing his co-conspirators. I have, Saverfeld asked. You have, and tomorrow morning you will gather the men and announce that you have found this list in Tillery's cabin, said Edmund. But you are a forgiving man, and in your effort to put past sins, you will not bring retribution to those involved. Displeasure covered Saverfeld's face. Take your lumps, Captain. It's either that, or you start tossing crew members into the brig with the hopes that you are imprisoning the correct people. I believe that Tillery was the head of the snake. Now that that head has been severed, this potential mutiny will wither away. Edmund lit a fresh cigarette. When you arrive in port, you release your entire crew and hire anew for your journey back to the States. Of course, present company excluded. The heat and humidity of New York summers are suddenly very appealing to me. <coughs> the end. This is pretty much in a stark contrast to the story that we had our last episode. Last one was depressing, man. I kind of like pirate ship, you know, stories. That one was fun. I'll be honest, towards the end there, I was just trying to figure out which chord was the, the resolving one, so I was just <laughs> clicking all of them, because I wasn't paying enough attention, so I was just clicking notes that sounded good, and uh, yeah, so that was just me guessing. Anyway. Were you disappointed it wasn't the ghost? I mean, I knew it wasn't, but you also knew it had to be a person, because if it was a ghost, there'd be no clues, and you knew right off the bat, at the window... Uh, like latch was broken so yeah. someone from the outside could get in yep. but it's a small window people can't crawl out of that thing right six inches six inches across uh, exactly so i mean 
it's kind of like the other story we read a long time ago where it was like the gorilla. I think it was the first one we did. All right, that's Edgar Allan Poe's Edgar Murder Allan in Poe's. the Room War. There was the one where the ant was the killer. There was one where the bird was the <laughs> thief. I mean, animals are such a good scape... Not scapegoat. That's not the right... <laughs> well, you know what? That's That worked out better than I meant it. Animals are such a good tool because you never guess them. I, I, do you think we should do a season on animals? Eh. Lions, tigers, and bears. Are <laughs> it could be interesting. I feel like knowing that the killer is going to be an animal will either make it easier or harder. Well, again, at one point you're like, okay, there are there's one animal in the story, and the theme is animals. They did it. Well, authors would be able to use animals any way they want, so they could be used as witnesses or emotional support creatures. I see. So the theme is just you have to use an animal. Yeah. The one um I can't remember what season it was, but the haunted house one with mm-hmm. the guy and that one house really was haunted. Yeah. And that was the one where the guy brought his dog to the haunted house. And then in the original, is that was that I <laughs> I can't remember the name of the author. It's almost on the tip of my tongue. But he forgot he brought the dog. It like in the original book it just the dog just goes away and I you know, being a dog owner and a dog lover, I'm like, dude, you can't just forget the dogs there. And yeah. so in the adaptation, <laughs> we brought the dog back. In. That was one of those stories that when you dissected it at the end, it was like, this had so many holes that it just forgot about. Edward Bulwer Lytton. Wasn't that the guy who wrote the, it was a dark and stormy night? Yep. Yeah. So he was one of those authors who's now everyone's quotes and it's just kind of like generic mystery, but he wasn't amazing. And that story we did by him. There is a uh, there is a whole group that uh, is dedicated to him. What what season was that in? Was that the was that his first mystery? You know what? It was not the detective, so it had to be season two. I don't remember what season two was. Season two was called The Originators, and that's where we went back to the stories before mystery was a genre. So oh, I think right. that one was considered a horror story. So that was, it was one of the horrors, but it was like one of the first mysteries. I don't know that this one by Michael may be our first one aboard a ship. I feel like, was it? Was it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. It was definitely one of the more interesting ones. Absolutely. And the time period make it made it more like, I don't want to say relatable, but everyone knows about pirate ships. Not everyone knows about modern day ships. I think the cool thing about those older time periods is it is much more reliant on, you know, what you see and what you hear. Mm-hmm. All of the modern ones, generally, it's like looking at surveillance and you kind of have to, because if you write a modern one and you don't do that, then everybody's like, well, wasn't there surveillance or didn't you take fingerprints? Yeah, that's the problem with being better at solving mysteries nowadays is that it's like, why didn't you figure this out? It's kind of, the t- detectives can look stupid by not using things. And you mean book detectives. Book detectives, not yeah. real detectives. I mean, they don't, they, they do use those things. Yeah. But book detectives... I guess that's probably why a lot of um, mysteries took place a while ago. Yeah, I mean, I know people who specifically choose to set books in sort of the 50s, 60s, 70s because it really predates some of the modern advent of technology. But it still has modern motives. Modern motives, modern... They're more relatable in a sense. 
I had read, I think it was the Maltese Falcon or, or one of those, and I was was cracking up at the number of times that people left their office to go visit other people only to have those people not be there. <laughs> Maybe it was something earlier than that because it was it was the telephone had been invented, but it wasn't common. We had a conversation about it, about how much you read one of those mysteries where it was just one guy just walking everywhere, you know, going from one place to another, and the people just weren't there. I think that was before Americans were fat because they had to walk everywhere because they didn't have <laughs> telephones. Yeah, probably. <laughs> well, let me tell you a little bit about our author today, Michael Pencavage. So his story, The Cost of Doing Business, originally appeared in Thuglet, issue 24, and won a 2008 Derringer Award for Best Mystery. He has been an associate editor for Space and Time magazine, as well as the editor of horror suspense anthology, Tales from a Darker State. One of his stories was recently been filmed as a short movie. Well, that is pretty freaking cool, isn't it? Yeah. I wish you put the name of the story in there, and then we can, like, see if it's on Netflix. Um, Fiction of his can be found in approximately 60 magazines and anthologies from three different countries, such as Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine here in the States, Here and Now in England, and Crime Factory in Australia. A review of Michael's novel, Persons Unknown, on Goodreads said, A clever thriller that keeps you guessing, but never pulls the rug out from under you or insults your intelligence. I really like that. That's, I like books that are written that way. Its protagonist is a James M. Kane, anti-hero for the 21st century, arrogant, up to no good, and entirely unreliable, until he isn't. The story is an allegory for the illusion... Ill, 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 I love a reviewer, I can't say the word. Illustrious? I-L-L-U-S-O-R-Y. Illusory? an ephemeral nature of control where a master of the universe whose sneer of cold command is methodically dismantled until he literally cannot control anything. Oh my goodness, that is one heck of a sentence. The characters are true and the cruelty is delicious and the ironies are stark. A dynamic ride from start to finish. Well, that is certainly a very complimentary review by somebody who knows a lot of big words. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, that wraps up this episode for Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, or giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Please pay what you can. Interested in advertising on Mysteries to Die For? Check out our website. Information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. The Ghost of the Paul Henry was written by Michael Pencavage. Music and production are by Jack Wolf, and episode art is by T.G. Wolf. All right. Why did you pick the organ for this? It's the haunted, like, ship one, of oh, course. Oh, okay. Come on, it's like Davy okay. Jones. Okay, it's, okay. I feel like I picked the perfect one. I think, do, can you do a sea shanty? If you could do a sea shanty. I don't know sea shanties. Um, what do you do? Yeah, but this is a, a evil, scary mystery. I wasn't going to do this can in a major it? key. Can you, what can you do? You can't do a sea shanty in a minor key and just slow it down. That requires me to at least know it in the first place. <laughs> The next time we have a ghost on a pirate ship, we have to do a haunted sea shanty. 
probably. All right, I'll shut up and let you take us out. <laughs>